Welcome to Media Path. We'd like to uh, introduce you to all forms of entertainment, streaming, cable, broadcast, print, online, offline. And if we pique your interest about something, we offer you other selections about the same topic. And today we have two amazing guests. And this is going to be like the NBC4 Los Angeles support group, Laurel Erickson and Paul <laughs> Skolnick, that I'll introduce in just a couple of minutes. They're accomplished TV journalists. They work for NBC4 for nearly 30 years and, and, and were part of many of the top local and national news stories that burst out of L.A., including the infamous Night Stalker case. And there is a fascinating four-part Netflix series about this case streaming right now. We're going to talk with these guys who were two of the pivotal commentators on this uh, on this amazing story. Wheezy, what have you got for us this week? Well, first, I want to start out by congratulating last week's guest on our show, Diane Warren, for winning a Golden Globe. Yes, for that was her unbelievable. And Sophia Loren's The Road Ahead. So congratulations, Diane. That, so that proud is to upper, up her chances of getting at least an Oscar nomination, right? Oh, she's going to get nominated, but and she's going to win, I think, the Oscar. But I would like to offer, I think that we were we offer good luck. Right, so right. We did. We pumped up her visibility a little bit. Oh, sure. You know how the Hollywood foreign <laughs> press just adores this podcast. That's right. Go so, okay. In terms of media picks, I, you first talk about Made You Look because then I have one to follow that up. Oh, great. Okay. Well, listen, I don't know anything about art. I'm dazed and confused by a lot of art, especially abstract expressionism. I don't get it. But I'm fascinated by the art market. What gives paintings their value and how much rich people will spend to buy and collect pieces of art? Artists like Mark Rothko and Jackson Pollock, whose work can cost 34 million bucks a piece. So I was excited when I found this new documentary called Made You Look, a true story about fake art. It just started streaming on Netflix. It's a story about how the Nobler Gallery in New York City which is a gallery that's been around for about 150 years, and some say it's the most famous private art gallery in the world, owned by the Hammer family, Armin Hammer, the oil magnate and philanthropist. This gallery got caught selling fake art, forgeries of famous paintings, and they sold like $80 million worth of fake paintings, Rothko's and Pollock's, four or five other abstract expressionist artists. The interesting thing is that many of these paintings were appraised and investigated, and none were discovered as fake. They had art critics, art forensic specialists, art historians, art gallery owners. Nobody spotted the fakes. And there's a great revelation at the beginning of the film. Somebody asked the director of the Met in New York, which is the most prestigious art gallery in the world probably, and they said, how many of the paintings hanging in this museum right now do you think are fake? And the person said, I honestly don't know. <laughs> the story tracks a woman who contacted the Nobler as representing a wealthy anonymous collector who was trying to sell off a family collection. The Nobler fell for it and may or may not have colluded with this woman knowing the pieces were fake. Turns out the fake pieces were created by a Chinese artist who lived in Queens, who was able to so accurately duplicate some of the work of these famous artists, their style, their materials, their signatures, and nobody caught on. 
And the film goes on to the first suspicions of the work and then years later to the court trials and the lawsuits. Lots of twists and turns, along with a lot of pissed off and humiliated rich people. It was fantastic. So even <laughs> if you don't care about art, it's a great look at the psychology wheezy of huge cons, how people are tricked into stuff because they want to believe. They if want you're interested, to believe. And this title reminded me of something that I had watched a few years ago. And uh, you can find it online. It's called My Kid Could Paint That. And it follows the early artistic career of Marla Olmsted, a young girl from Binghamton, New York, who gains fame first as a child prodigy abstract artist. The filmmakers enter the story as their documentation begins to reveal controversy concerning the creation of this child's art. It's a fascinating look into the pretension of the art world, the perceived value of art deemed to be expensive, and the pressure we place on children to be extraordinary. So I That's just a got, great I, selection. Yeah, also, got, if you're interested in the topic, there's a, a documentary called Beltracci, The Art of Forgery. That's streaming online. Or you can go to Art and Craft. It's an Amazon Prime documentary about Mark Landis, who is one of the world's most prolific art forgers. And there's another title called Who the F is Jackson Pollock, about a woman who finds a Jackson Pollock in her garage, has no idea who, who he is. And because she's kind of an insignificant woman in the art world, even though it's it's believed to be a Jackson Pollock, the art world refuses to accept that it's a Jackson Pollock because of where it was discovered. Wow. So it's all perception, right? What are we purchasing? It, purchasing. Uh, and, and the hideous amounts of money, and they just all need to have them hanging in their home. And their self-esteem and their whole self-identity is involved with a painting they don't even understand. So do you have uh, have another one for us? Oh, I have so many today. I'm sorry for it. Have you watched Drunk History? I've never seen it. Oh. It just brings back too many bad memories for myself. I understand, but let me just describe it because it's just the most strange concept. I can't believe it's actually a show and like six or seven seasons into this, it's a, it's a show. It must have begun with some drunken night where someone was being hilarious and said, this would be a show. And, and then here we are. So it's a half hour series called Drunk History. It's based on the Funny or Die web series created by Derek Waters and Jeremy Connor, both of whom, along with Will Ferrell and Adam McKay, are the show's executive producers. In each episode, an inebriated narrator joined by host Waters struggles to recount a historical tale. The telling is intercut with actors enacting the narrator's version of events while lip syncing the narrator's drunken dialogue. It's the most insanely absurd concept show in Is the creation. guy really drunk or is it fake? Oh, no. They just like pound like a few whiskeys. <laughs> and for some people, like for me, like after one whiskey, I I would just be really sloppy. So, I mean, I totally get it. Like you all of a sudden you're incoherent, but you do remember what you're trying to say and it just comes out super funny. Uh, and I would imagine that watching the show drunk only adds to the hilarity. Regular performers include Jack Black, Lisa Bonet, Connie Britton, Michael Sarah, Bill Hader, Kevin Nealon, Bob Odenkirk, Jack McBrayer, and Winona Ryder. Historical figures such as Teddy Roosevelt, Patty Hearst, Billy the Kid, Al Capone, and Lewis and Clark are profiled as are seminal moments like the Battle of the Alamo, Watergate, and the Scopes Monkey Trial. Uh, and according to the internet, here's how it works. The storytellers in the series read up on the stories while sober, then rehearse it in front of a producer before getting drunk. Water says he drinks with the storytellers in order to let them know we're doing this together and so as not to make it feel exploitive. The end product is historically hilarious. And before you talk about The Night Stalker, I have two more things. Do you have any questions about drunk history? I have no idea. I, 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 I don't know what that represents I in culture. I, I, just it's just people in their 30s 
being hilarious. That's all I can. Oh, okay. I mean, let's just chalk it up to that. Right. So I'd also like to recommend, and I don't know if you've watched this yet. Have you watched Alan V. Farrow? No, I haven't. Okay. Because I, as you know, my housing is in transition now. Right. I don't have uh, HBO. I want to get it. But this crushes me because I, I, I used to be such a huge, I'll let you finish. I used to be such a huge fan of Woody Allen. I wanted to write like him. His right. early comedy works were unmatched. And then the darkness ensued and I, I've never recovered from it. All right. Well, I'll tell you a little bit about this. They're rolling it out one episode at a time weekly. So I've only seen two so far, but it's a four-part documentary series, Alan V. Farrow, from award-winning investigative filmmakers Kirby Dick, Amy Ziering, and Amy Hurdy, which goes behind the years of sensational headlines to reveal the private story of one of Hollywood's most notorious and public scandals, the accusation of sexual abuse against Woody Allen involving Dylan, his then seven-year-old daughter with Mia Farrow, their subsequent custody trial, the revelation of Allen's relationship with Farrow's daughter, Sunyi, and the controversial aftermath in the years that followed. Along with new investigative work pieced together via intimate home movie footage, court documents, police evidence, revelatory videotapes, and never-before-heard audio tapes, the series includes interviews with Mia Farrow, Dylan Farrow, Ronan Farrow, Carly Simon, prosecutor Frank Mako, relatives, investigators, and experts. Alan V. Farrow also examines the effects of trauma on a family and features prominent cultural voices exploring Alan's body of work in a broader context and reflecting on how public revelations about the personal lives of artists can lead to reevaluations of their work. So, for example, Woody Allen repeatedly includes a relationship between an older man and a teenage girl in his work so as to normalize it. The older man character will say things to the young girl like, this is just a little chapter in your life. You will go on to date boys at your school, not caring to realize that an impressionable young girl, for her, no Chad or Danny frat kid will ever compare to an accomplished and legendary 40 or 50 year old man. She's in love with him. He is simply having sex with a teenager for his own gratification. This story resonates deeply with me because both Fritz and I were mentors to the young accuser in the Michael Jackson trial, and we were called as witnesses, and we understand firsthand the dynamics and forces in play when a very famous person is accused of child abuse. Wow, I'm glad you brought it up. I, I haven't seen it. Uh, I, I have heard that Dylan Farrow's testimony just about seals the deal, if there are any people still on the fence about that. So I'm sure sometime I'll see it. Glad and it's really brought. interesting to see Dylan as an adult and to see the videotapes in question because... Uh, when this, when these events had first transpired, Mia Farrow wrote a memoir called What Falls Away, and it's the best written celebrity memoir that I have ever read. She's extremely talented as a writer. It's published in 1997, not long after the controversial events. Mia Farrow takes us from her Hollywood childhood through her acting career, her relationships with Sinatra, Andre Previn, and Woody Allen, and her struggle to protect her children in a painful custody battle with Woody Allen. It was this crisis that led her to reflect upon the incidents that had brought her to a place so incomprehensible. The pushback to spreading her truth has been intense. Throughout it all, she remains courageous and committed to defending her children. So, and that's you know, there's some irony involved here. And I, <clears throat> this is not to take away the blame on Woody Allen. But, you know, when she was involved with Sinatra and Andre Previn, she was like 19 years old. So exactly. there's a pattern here. 
So really interesting. I'm yeah, glad you brought that's that one a up. really important point. Yeah. And people say that when he put those young people like uh, Hemingway in the uh, Manhattan, this was the start of him grooming people to get used to the idea of a way older man being involved mm-hmm. with a way younger woman. It's creepy. And I, I he was a hero of mine. And I feel betrayed. I'm, I'm yeah. Happy. And so well, no, we're left with the d- dilemma with Michael Jackson and Woody Allen is that does work suffice on its own, or do we not know? That's really interesting. Fear too much about this person to enjoy That's the work. That's a great anyway. cultural question. Mm-hmm. All right, Weez, I want to set up our two great guests, talk about the documentary series they were part of. It's The Night Stalker. This is a four part Netflix docuseries about a string of murders that happened in California, 1984, 1985. These were horrific crimes that spanned the state from Orange County all the way to San Francisco. And I got to tell you, full disclosure, this may not be good viewing for everybody. It gets very grisly. But if you're a true crime enthusiast or if you're an L.A. resident who happened to live through this time period, this is going to be a part of your history. This case blanketed the entire state of California in fear. Not only serial murders, but there was sexual assault. There was abduction of very young children and burglaries. What I found interesting about this is that it's not just reviewing the chronology of these awful crimes. They do a parallel story about the two key homicide detectives from LAPD whose lives were consumed with solving these murders, Frank Salerno and Gil Cedillo, and we'll talk about those guys with our two guests. They were considered the sort of Batman and Robin of homicide detectives. And as the film winds its way through the various crime scenes, it talks about how this case affected the lives of the detectives, how it weighed on them emotionally, how Cedillo's wife and family, fearing for their own safety as the crimes got closer to their neighborhood, moved out of the house until the case was solved. The other interesting element was, and I can't wait to talk about this, the often testy relationship between law enforcement and the media. They're both trying desperately to do their jobs, which often means they bang heads. And we're going to talk to our guests about that dynamic. If you're interested in cases of this nature, two other L.A. stories, you can look up the case of the Hillside Stranglers. There were two of them. That's what made the case interesting. It's a 1989 documentary. And on Amazon Prime, you can look at the family inside the Manson cult. All right. Two people who were pivotal in covering the Night Stalker worked at NBC4 for 30 years, as did I. They were featured as sort of for lack of a better term, color commentators on the series, talking about their experiences covering the case, Laurel Erickson and Paul Skolnick. Laurel was a reporter at NBC4 for 33 years, one of the most skilled reporters ever to work in local news, known for her bravery and her relentless pursuit of facts. Law enforcement would hyperventilate when they saw Laurel coming toward them for an interview. There's a story about their relationship in this documentary. She won a Peabody Award in 1988 for a heartbreaking story about death in an AIDS hospice. One of the iconic pieces of video about Laurel was her climbing up over the wreckage from the collapsed 118 freeway after the Northridge earthquake. I'm so happy to see you, Laurel. It's been a long time. Paul, I've seen a little... More frequently. Paul Skolnick is the a Santa Monica freeway, Chris. 
I'm so, I beg your pardon. They were all crumbling. And I, I, Paul Skolnick is a writer and news producer, both print and TV. He told the story about everything that happened in LA riots and fires and floods and tornadoes and elections. He even covered the Elian Gonzalez story, the story of the Cuban boy being repatriated. That was a major global news story. He wrote and produced for NBC4, went on to become a managing editor of Channel 2 in Los Angeles. Now his, has his own company, uh, and I'm so happy to have my two friends here today. Uh, guys, welcome. Thank uh, you. Paul, Thank you. Paul, just, just to set people, give a general overview of what the Night Stalker case was. Time frame, and here's a question. Was the 1984 LA Olympics still going on when this is happening, or was it slightly after? It was the year after the Olympics. So, uh, the Night Stalker cases we began to become aware of in March of 85, and they peaked on Labor Day weekend with the capture of Richard Ramirez in 1985. Wow. Laurel, talk about Salerno and Cedillo. I said they're like the Butch and Sundance of the Homicide Department. Salerno was considered the homicide detective, and Cedillo he sort of took under his wing. Talk about those guys and your relationship to them. I will. I just want to say that nobody knows for sure whether Richard Ramirez was killing people in 84. And that is an image that's always been in my mind of us watching the Olympics and, and this man loose. But we don't know for sure that he was doing that. Frank Salerno, I look at the video now and Frank Salerno looks so young to me, right? But at that point in time, he was the old man of the duo. And Gil uh, Carrillo was a young guy, very ebullient. Frank was very close to the vest. And Paul and I, uh, we kind of had a work marriage because we worked together and, and were desk mates for a long time. So Paul and I were really trying to get interviews with them and they, they weren't forthcoming. But as the case went on, we became friends with them. And the documentary really paints a picture, sets us up as characters. And Paul and I are on one side of the line and Frank and Gil are on the other side. But but the truth is that, and as you well know, that law enforcement and journalists have a kind of symbiotic relationship. They're two different species. They're not the same, but they depend upon each other. And uh, in our case, we clearly needed information from the police about this, this crime, because as I recall, and Paul may have a different vision, as I recall, it was like chasing confetti. When you look at the documentary, you see the photographs of all of the victims lined up on the wall. It looks so organized. And I think back, why didn't we figure that out, right? And I remember reading a book about a, a two years ago, uh, a fellow who, who interviewed Richard Ramirez in prison. And he said that even the FBI couldn't figure out what was going on. It was it was just chasing loose ends, loose cases. And I think you remember that, Fritz, because it was a terrifying summer. And as the summer went on, Frank and Gil and Paul and I became friends in this search for uh, the killer. Obviously, we had different missions, but we, we, we helped each other out. Law enforcement needs the media, needs journalists, because they're looking for clues. They're looking for eyewitnesses. They're looking for help. And in the case of Richard Ramirez... They may not have intended it, but they wound up with a human dragnet and a whole neighborhood coming together and, and capturing him. And there's a delicate balance between 
what the public should know to keep themselves safe or to potentially help capture this guy or to provide information and the very precious information that the investigators need to keep tight because if the public learns something, so does the killer. So if you guys, so when, so talk about what happened when you somehow, or maybe you can even tell us how you learned of the exact model of shoe that the killer was wearing. Paul and I, uh, I'm not going to tell you how we found out, but we did. (laughs) Excuse me. And one thing I learned from this documentary is that, uh, when the public is told for five or six years that the media, you know, the basis of free democracy, when the media is the enemy, you get some strange reaction from some viewers. We had overwhelming support and praise for what we did in this case. But there were people who really didn't understand how journalists work with law enforcement. NBC, KNBC, was a marvelous place to work. And it had very high standards for what we put on the air and what we don't. In this case, we found out about the shoe. And as Paul will point out, uh, we didn't go on the air with that. We went to the detectives and there is this cat and mouse game that goes on all the time. And we, we went to the uh, lieutenant who was in charge of the detectives and, and said, you know, we've got this clue. Uh, what do you have to say about that? And So what ended up happening is that Paul and I got finally a walkthrough with Frank and Gil and an interview. It was a softball interview because clearly we wanted to be able to talk to them again. Uh, But a lot of people looked at the documentary and came away thinking that we had somehow extorted information, you know, extorted, tried to blow the the investigation up for our own benefit. And that was not the case. In fact, what actually happened, and Paul, maybe you could speak to this, uh, Mayor Feinstein in San Francisco really blew the case open. And then the mm-hmm. other problem, too, was the local police jurisdictions, because they were very protective of information they got, and they didn't always share it. And, and that was another, I think, problem looking back that there may be, as we found in other situations, 9-11, you know, sometimes more needs to be shared than is shared by law enforcement. They're more competitive than collaborative. Well, I think that there were some issues. Mm-hmm. You could tell that. You're talking about the the, the uh, standoff between LAPD and, and SFPD. Sheriffs. sheriffs and then even San Francisco and... And, and San Francisco. There, there, were and, also, there were also smaller jurisdictions that got clues. Now, Paul has a Paul has an amazing mind for remembering every detail, and maybe Paul can speak to that. But I I just remember that there were jurisdictions that would come up with a clue, and maybe they didn't pass it on when they should have. There were a couple of cases. There was a a rape case uh, linked to the Night Stalker in Burbank, not terribly far from where we all worked. And there was, I think, a homicide case in Glendale which Mm -hmm. is next to Burbank. Um, And these are those smaller departments. Um, They don't want to get Bigfooted out of their case Mm -hmm. by another agency. And so sometimes they're a little protective with each other in providing the information. Do you know why Diane Feinstein, who was then mayor of San Francisco, would have 
blown the information? Was she so desperate to protect her citizens that she wanted to give them as much information about this guy as possible? Did she not consult with law enforcement about the the wisdom of these public disclosures? What do you, what do you guys think? My sense from what Inspector Falzone says in the documentary is that the police chief had not briefed her that these were things not to talk about. I don't know if it was Falzone, but one of the spokespeople from SFPD also said, and this makes perfect sense, and this is the conundrum that happens in police departments. If we have this information and don't release it, and then another bad crime happens, then we're culpable in having extended this series of serial killings beyond where it already was. No, I mean, there's certain information you do release, but you don't release the shoe print, you know, to, mm-hmm. and, and, and as a journalist, you know, if you burn too many detectives on investigations, you're not going to get any more information. That's one thing. And also, as I said earlier, NBC, KNBC uh, was a level of news operation where public safety, you know, nobody at our station was going to do something that was going to blow wide open an investigation that involved public safety. But wasn't there some possibility that someone would turn in a friend who wore that shoe? Or is it just, do they, do they kind of gauge all that? I, I don't know. I think that on the shoe, and Paul, please speak to this, but I mean, with the shoe, it was a, it was a kind of a fingerprint for them with cases that came up. And as soon as that was, that kind of information is put out there, then he's just going to go and buy another pair of shoes. So mm-hmm. that's not something you would want. Nobody, I don't think John is going to turn in Ricky for wearing those shoes, but mm-hmm. those shoes are, were at that point, a fingerprint for the detectives. You know, the, the, the footprint is a, go- a good place to talk about forensics. Because back then, uh, forensics weren't as sophisticated as they are now. So they had, they had like, this was like real police grunt work. They had a footprint. And then later on in the case, they had one fingerprint. But at that point, they didn't have a computerized national fingerprint database to go from. So this was like real grassroots level police work. My recollection is that California was just building an automated fingerprint identification system. Um, And you might remember this, Laurel. It wasn't online yet, but when they had that fingerprint, they tested it in the system. Previously, the uh, identification of fingerprints was all manual. I mean, people would uh, memorize the, the technical description of the points of identification are whirls and ridges. You look real closely at your finger, you'll see that the fingerprints have a shape. And there were people in law enforcement agencies who would just know the patterns on the cards. And there were tens of thousands of cards. Everybody who gets arrested and booked into jail got a fingerprint card. So there were a lot of fingerprints. And I think that the computerized system didn't match as quickly as the human system did in this case. It's just interesting to me that the detectives were trying so desperately to keep the information that they had secret and top secret. And who winds up catching this guy is 
the public that he had been terrorizing. It's a it's a really poetic end. It was like a movie. It was fantastic. <laughs> so a well, little bit yeah. of information. Go ahead, Laurel. Oh, I was going to say they did keep all that information um, private. You're right, and and when they finally got desperate because Paul, I can't remember the timing on this, but I don't know if it's because details had been released or they were afraid he was. I can't remember why they were afraid he was going to be out. But once they did have that news conference on Friday night, I mean, it was just it was mind boggling. I mean, how how quickly everybody started recognizing him. And in our case, Dino Castro and, and, and Scott Dreamer, Dino is always praised because he got that shot of Richard Ramirez in the car. But as, as I heard it, Scott Dreamer was a very quiet, shy guy. Uh, he's the one who was listening to the police radios. I, I always think he's kind of the unsung hero because he's, he's, you know, that quiet detective who was, who put it together. And then, and then, Dino ran at home and got the shot. It was a, it was an amazing, amazing day in that neighborhood. All those people coming together. It was terrific. You know, I, I, you can't help but think as the case was plodding along and they were very frustrated because, um, and Paul mentions this a couple of times in his commentary in the show, there, there was no pattern identifiable. And, uh, Nobody knew how this guy was coming up with his targets. Uh, there, there seemed to be no rhyme or reason. And you can't help but wonder how much more quickly this thing might have been solved or they might have been at least able to make progress. It, were we in the era of social media and there was Twitter and all those kinds of things and how people could at a, at a grassroots level communicate with one another? Yeah, I, I've got no great sense of what social media would have done to it. One of the things that happens when a case gets a huge amount of publicity, like this one does, is that law enforcement is flooded with tips. Mm -hmm. And most of those tips are not good, but they have to check every one. And that takes an incredible number of detectives. Mm -hmm. Every one they got to run down. Somebody calls and says, gee, that looks like my ex-husband. They got to go over and they got to see if it looks like the ex-husband. A little of that pops up in the documentary. Mm -hmm. Some of those false leads. But there are thousands or tens of thousands of them. And as the publicity intensifies, so do the calls that law enforcement gets. Now, it complicates their job immeasurably. And you guys are aware of the Internet sleuthing that's going on nowadays. It seems like a serial killer wouldn't have an opportunity to be this dangerous and prolific when you have DNA and you have technology and you have social media because there's people online trying to solve crimes and they're they're collaborating they're they're sharing information maybe unlike these unique uh police and sheriff's departments but people are but turn that turn that on its head mm -hmm. assuming that Richard Ramirez given his drugs etc. Uh, assuming that the killer is adept with social media, does he then, you know, get information? Does yeah, it that's help interesting. the killer? Mm -hmm. I, and he I was watching know. TV. If and, you look at the yeah. documentary, uh, there's one guy who was working in, in homicide. I think he was an ex-Marine, Paul can 
flush that out. But I think he was complaining because he was spending so much of his time chasing crazy clues. Um, right. Yeah. And and the one thing that I that would also be, I mean, there's like things that would be different that would help law enforcement and things that would be different that would perhaps make things more complicated. And one is that, you know, the imagery of everyone on that bus having the same newspaper and the newspaper being in every bodega and his face being suddenly everywhere. We're not all looking in the same direction any longer. Very. Yes, that's correct. Hey, guys, let's go back to the beginning of this story, because not everyone is familiar how stories are assigned and breaking news occurs in a newsroom. It was so sporadic in the beginning. How did you guys get assigned to the case is what I'm saying. Probably the assignment desk when there was a murder out in San Gabriel or wherever that first one was. Because they weren't all tied together at first, Fritz. No, I know. No. And so Paul may have been doing some. I don't know, Paul. I don't know what you were doing at the beginning. I just don't. It wasn't a situation where Paul discovered something and then I was assigned. I think the desk said they've got got a, a, you know, a murder out in San Gabriel. And and then I'm assigned to it. We go out there. And, you know, it it just seems like another murder. And I don't mean to Mm -hmm. sound cold, but. What makes no, this, another day in the newsroom. I, I another it. day in the newsroom. Exactly. And so um, you, you go out and, and it's not until several of these cases when when people start putting it together and, and it turns out to be a serial killer. And Paul and I were desk mates back then. We had there were four of us. There was John Flynn, who'd been in Vietnam. He was older mm-hmm. than we were. George Larimore, who went on to access Hollywood Entertainment tonight. But he was just fabulous at news and Paul and me. And so we were all, we were desk mates and Paul and I were kind of like a bickering work couple, you know? And so we, (laughs) we got together on this story. Paul, tell, tell more about it because I don't remember. I really don't remember how you got involved, except that I know Pete noise that giant in news in Los Angeles. uh, He was busy working his sources and he had he just passed away 90 so you know that he had a lifetime of news sources and he was busy working them and i'm not quite sure how we all came together on it paul so i think that you had been assigned a couple of the cases and i know in my just my usual work day you'd come into work and there were these stories from the overnight that these freelance guys had shot little bits of video and you got to make it into it. You know, it's a brief story. And I remember the, the first homicide we knew about, which is not the first case in the string, but it's along about March. And it was a, a woman who was murdered in her home in Monterey Park. Monterey Park. Okay. Yeah. And I think I was the writer on that. And I probably wrote a 30 or 45 second story, not a big story. So there are all different kinds of murders we have in Los Angeles. We have domestic murders. We have gang murders. We have robbery murders. This wasn't any of those. It just stuck in my head. Okay, that's kind of weird. Just filed it away. Um, And then there would be more and more cases, and many of them fell on your shift, Laurel. Some of them fell on other reporters. And one of the common factors of them was we would see when we reviewed the videotape, there's Gil Carrillo walking around. Mm. So there were quite a few detectives in the sheriff's department 
why does this one guy have all the cases? And then shortly thereafter, he's joined by his partner, uh, who is Frank Salerno, who is the legendary detective who was involved in the Hillside Stragglers several years before. Well, you know, maybe these aren't just garden variety homicides if this senior detective is involved. Uh, and then every day we started trying to do more. Now, I got to say, we were pushed by the competition of other TV stations. We were pushed by the newspapers, the Los Angeles Times, but especially of the dearly departed Herald Examiner. Mm -hmm. Oh, yes. They're, Boy, they, yeah, they gave him the name. They day. gave it the name, the Hillside Strangler. Talk about this series of names, Paul, ending up with the one the uh, Herald Examiner chose. Oh, everybody called him something else. Our boss at the time uh, called him the walk in killer because he would walk into the houses. And another TV station called him the Inland Invader because all of the cases we knew about were away from the coast. Therefore, it was inland. Somebody else had Valley Intruder. And then one day, the Hillside Strength, uh, uh, the uh, Herald Examiner hits on Night Stalker. The Night Stalker had been this weird TV show, maybe, I don't know, <laughs> eight or 10 years before. It's a great show in which a reporter investigates the occult oh oh my and it, it, this guy darren mcgavin plays the reporter okay and it, it, it's it's just a goofy tv show um these were not goofy cases but that was the name that stuck but you know paul the the fun part of that if there was a fun part in this you know that summer but talk about the police jurisdictions protecting information uh, different news outlets were protecting the name that they had that they had uh, given Richard Ramirez. We we had the walk-in killer, and I remember for weeks we had to call this person the walk-in killer. But finally, we, I don't know what July, uh, everybody was calling him the Night Stalker, which was really a great name and very creepy, well suited, quite ominous. Yeah. Laurel, were there a lot of uh, women investigating violent crimes in this time period? I think there were, I think there were, I don't know. I think there were a lot of women. I, you know, crime is not my thing, by the way. I, okay. I'm, I'm interested in people and what makes them tick. And this, you know, we, we were asked that in a blog and a uh, podcast with somebody else about lovers of true crime. I'm not a lover of true crime. Paul loves this stuff. I, <laughs> I like covering stories that affect people and I like, finding out what makes them tick. And if there's a tragedy, I like to do what I can do to help them. But um, yeah. there were women covering this case. Mm -hmm. uh, and I can't think of who they were. <laughs> there were a lot of guys covering it, you know. And as I've said before, covering news in the 80s was, I think, dicey as a woman. There, there was there were still... Uh, there was a lot of misogynist stuff that still went on. And somebody, when it, I think it was the woman camera person who said, well, do you think they took you seriously? And I, and I, I didn't even want to go back to that because, you know, back then you, you didn't always approach these guys uh, as a threatening uh, woman. 
you maybe did something else once in a while. And I think overall, I don't, I think that I'm not even sure that television reporters were that respected because really, I look back at those days and I I think it's almost like a movie studio used to be, you know, we were all on call and um, everybody, everybody was really grateful for their job and climbing and and trying to get ahead. Um, So in terms of women, uh, Patty Ecker, I I, I think there were women, but Paul and I were so focused on what we were doing and also worried constantly that we were going to be beat by the competition, especially the Herald Examiner, which I loved, um, that we weren't really thinking a lot about, you know, who was covering it. We just were trying to get information before anybody else did. And then, of course, there was this balancing act, as we've talked about, about what you release and what you don't. Mm -hmm. But it's interesting that when it comes to making this documentary, you two are chosen rather than any print reporter, which... We would always think that like from the from the Watergate days that it would be the print reporters that would be, you know, the more more 24 seven trying to figure it out ahead of anybody else. And and it was it was you two. Well, I think Paul and I had a relationship with Frank and Gil. Um, It started off. It started off, uh, you know, dogging their footsteps, if you will. One night um, we were going on the air. It was the middle of the week, and I remember this because Pete Noyes, this is the great newsmaker, was sitting in his managing uh, editor's office, and he came. He was quite excited, and he said, "There's been a there's been a killer." He was a yeah. very passionate man, and uh, he said, "There's been you know there's been another murder up in San Francisco," and this is right before we're going on live at five o'clock, and then he's figuring out that we're going to be going up to San Francisco. We had a live, we had a newsroom piece at six o'clock. And this, I don't think was an overly big news date with the Night Stalker, but um, by seven o'clock or 7.15, we had taken our meager belongings and somehow gotten a cheeseburger and we were uh, going on to the airplane in Burbank. And and there there was Frank and Gil. And I don't think they were too happy, were they, Paul? We were dogging their footsteps on a consistent basis. And there's a great uh, moment. There's a great twist in the documentary when you get up to San Francisco and you're heading toward the scene and uh, just by fate ran into one of the neighbors of one of the victims who passed along a tip to you that turned out to be very important in the case and also gave you uh, 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 an ace in your hand uh, in in reporting the story. Paul, talk about that. Well, we were at the, uh, we had flown to San Francisco. We had done a live shot at 11 o'clock. We got up early the next morning and uh, we went to, the home where the homicide in San Francisco had happened. And both of us were not working on a full complement of sleep. (laughs) (laughs) And a lot of things happen when you're not sleeping a lot. And one of which is you get kind of grouchy and Laurel was going to shoot this stand up in front of the house. And uh, I was doing something that she thought was annoying I don't remember what it was, but it probably was. I was probably walking around behind the camera and distracting her. And 
so she started to complain about that. I said, okay, I'm, I'm just going to walk up to the corner. I'm going to walk down there. You shoot it without me here. And it was on that little quiet down stroll, solitude stroll, uh, that there's a guy washing his car. And I've got press credentials on and the neighborhood has been overrun with TV cameras a, a couple of days previously. And the guy looks at me. And says, yeah, I'm a reporter. I'm another one of those newsies. And the guy told me he was an off-duty cop. And I said, so, you know, all your buddies were here, huh? And he said, yeah, you know, it's just like those cases in L.A. And I remember what he said so clearly 35 years ago, but it still sticks with me. He said, same as those cases. You know, there's all that shit written all over the walls. Okay. That's a little different because nobody had said anything to us about that in any of the Los Angeles cases. So when a killer is killing people, he's making a statement. You're not sure what the statement is. Is it power? Is it rage? Is it sexuality? Is it robbery? When they're writing stuff on the walls when they're killing people, that adds politics and a lot of other dimensions to it. And I was just shocked, but I didn't want to let this guy know I was shocked and didn't know this. So I walked back and told Laurel that whatever she had just shot, we would have to do over again. Told her what the information was. Um, that was a big advance in the case. Wow. And, and talk about why it was so, I'm sorry, Weezy, just to talk about why that was so important, what, what that indicated in, in, in the psychology of Richard Ramirez. Well, that indicated that these killings were of a different dimension than we had expected. The Manson family had written political statements on the wall at the murder scenes, usually in blood. So that's the kind of, these were not, or didn't seem to be just robberies anymore. Once that, once there's, I don't know what to call it, ritualistic writing. Yeah. There were pentagrams and sort of satanic suggestions on the wall, which took it into another area. Right. Which the guy hadn't told me. We later established that. Uh, Pete Noyes was instrumental in coming up with that information. But that turns into the pentagrams, into the satanic overtones that came into the case. It, it's a gigantic leap forward in our understanding of this killer. Now, the, so when, you think, when you think about uh, why they selected Paul and me, I think part of it is because you know, we established this relationship with these two guys, probably more than the other reporters did. But also, when we came across something, it was pretty big. The clues that we came to them with, you know, made them take action and, and take us seriously. Um, so I think Paul's right that, that that was a monumental clue. So it was the shoe. And, and that's the kind of information that probably brought us in an even tighter symbiotic relationship. Mm -hmm. 
And you ended up, uh, shortly after finding this information out, walking up the stairs into the victim's house and, hi, guys, uh, to Salerno and Carrillo, and then asking them about the writing on the wall. What was their response? Um, well, at the moment, I can't remember, but I, I remember looking at it in the documentary. <clears throat> I think they <laughs> chuckled, didn't they? <laughs> they so what did they do, Paul? Do you remember? I just remember Frank was always sort of chuckling as he would try to get away from the camera. <laughs> yeah. Um, Frank had one of the great poster faces, uh, poker faces <laughs> poker. of all time. Yeah. And did not, nothing in his face showed that we were right. And they both kind of went, yeah, no, that didn't happen. When, in fact, it had happened, and it happened in Los Angeles, in several of the previous cases, hadn't happened since the beginning. The writing was a later change in, in the M.O., uh, but they really wanted to downplay that. They, they wanted to deny it. Did you remain friendly with these two detectives, having shared these experiences? Well, we did. I remember before... Uh... I don't know exactly when, whether it was between the investigation and the trial, Paul can maybe remember. I remember we went out for dinner with Gil and his wife, Pearl. And uh, I think I think that uh, we had a really good relationship at the end. It was, you know, in a way, it was as though you'd been through a war together, kind of. I don't know if that makes sense to you. Sure. Mm -hmm. And after the documentary, we hadn't really talked to each other at all in years and years. And after the documentary, we all got on the phone and called each other, and it, it, it was great to catch up. The investigation was only one part of it, and the trial that followed, for me, was the was the was you know was the most excruciating part of this whole case, because the testimony, when when you're a reporter, and you go out and cover murders, Paul and I were talking about this earlier today. You, have, you put a kind of plexiglass shield between you and what you're dealing with, because otherwise, you know, you would go bananas. Not that it doesn't come out some other time Saturday morning when you're having a cup of coffee, but <laughs> you have to have that. You have to have that shield. And uh, and, and so it, it's easier to deal with what you're reporting about. But when you're sitting in a courtroom and you can't leave and you're sitting there listening to Witness, witnesses and victims tell in detail what happened to them. It, it was it was one of the worst. Uh, it was very difficult, not as much as being the victim, mind you, but it was it was difficult for almost anybody to sit in that courtroom. And the jury and, had and to listen to it. It was a it was a much different kind of emotional experience covering the trial than than the investigation. I, I remember some stories uh, where, for instance, the Cerritos air crash, where the station supplied psychological counseling to people that worked on that story. And they actually had therapists come into the station and you could make an appointment and go talk and get what was off your chest. Was there ever any of that in this or was it because it was just you two who were doing the work there? No, I don't, I don't think there was. If there was. I don't, this is terrible for, you know, I, it's no. so long ago. I can't mm -hmm. actually remember, but I don't think that they did. I don't, do you, Paul? No, I don't remember anybody offering that. 
notice when we talk about about this, we talk about the story, and we talk about what I guess what are called journalistic elements of storytelling. This happened, and then that happened. In truth, these are gigantic dramas. Every one of these victims was a parent or a grandparent or an uncle or a neighbor. These events that we're talking about devastated the lives of these people. Mm -hmm. And it was more than the dozen or so murders um, because there were a lot of rapes. There were kidnappings. There were all sorts of other crimes. I think you brought that up or one of the detectives brought that up in the piece where you had five or six different MOs in one uh, location. You had the sexual abuse and murder of a wife. Then you had he, the fact that he killed the husband. Then you had the sexual abuse and abduction of a child. And so there were five or six different psychological profiles all in one case in one house, which made it so incredibly more awful than anything anybody was used to. So if you look at the history of serial killers, and for most of us, most of us, it begins with Jack the Ripper in London and goes through all these other cases, some of which we've brought up today. There's a pattern. There's some kind of pattern. It's difficult to discern, and it may not make a lot of sense to us, but to somebody's psychopathic mind, it made sense. And that's what the detectives have to figure out. It's a particular kind of victim. The victim's in a particular kind of place, has a particular appearance. In the case of Richard Ramirez, it was all sorts of different crimes and victims at random. At random. So since there were no earmarks tying any of this together, and he seems to go on quite a rampage that one year where it was just relentless and terrifying, were there other crimes tied to him retrospectively once they understood that these crimes don't fit any type of pattern? Well, the detective in San Francisco said that on the was it on the way up, Paul, to San Francisco that he, that Ramirez said, do you want to know about the other ones? Mm-hmm. Yeah, yeah, he, he had one, mentioned he another in case that. in San Francisco. Right. The L.A. detectives spent a lot of time going through other cases to seeing, try to find out if there was a match. And they did not substantially increase the number of crimes. But everybody... Everybody believes there were probably more. And, you know, people who who watched the documentary, I had one fellow call me. And he had somebody following him in Glendale when he was a little kid. And he remembered seeing a car that was uh, shown in the documentary, a car like that. And he was concerned about whether Richard Ramirez was following him. I mean, people looked at the documentary and, and came away with, you know, obviously different experiences. But but this is one of those instances with this man who was who really took it to heart. And, and it, that summer, because it was so explosive and it involved so many people and it involved so much fear and it was so damn hot that summer. 
it affected everyone. And it, it's interesting to me to hear uh, how different people reacted to it. And I was surprised when this man called and, and asked. I mean, I tried to find out some information for him, but it's a long time ago. But that green card, it stuck in this guy's mind and, and he was trying to reach closure. Wow, that is haunting. You you guys were here both for the Hillside Strangler case, too, and maybe Manson at the beginning. Uh, w- was there this pervasive fear throughout the entire community on either of those cases like there were with the Night Stalker? Paul, I wasn't here for uh, Manson. I was here for uh, Hillside Strangler but, Strangler, but I think Fernell Chapman was covering it. I mean, was the community yeah. caught up in, in in fear? I mean, everybody, people not close to any of the crime scenes were afraid during the Night Stalker. But there may have been a difference in victims between the Hillside Strangler and ah, Richard Ramirez. Good point. I was a high school student during the Manson killings in Long Beach. I remember the stories in the newspaper. I remember how shocking the murders were. But that was far away from us. Mm-hmm. Those were Hollywood celebrities. That was a whole different part of town, different kind of people. The Hillside Strangler cases tend to, tended to be single women. So that's part of what I was talking about, mm-hmm. about the trying to discern the pattern. And if I wasn't a single woman, the Hillside Strangler really didn't worry me. Yeah. If I was a single woman, it petrified me. And everything about the Manson case was past tense. It happened, and then you look right. back on it. It wasn't an ongoing string of anything. Right. I mean, it was a time period where I remember being told, you have to close your windows, you have to close your doors, and it was a hot summer, as Laurel recalled. And so if you didn't have air conditioning, because I was just a very young woman starting out my life here, and you know, being told, all right, close everything, It it was quite frightening. You didn't know where he was going to strike next. And if you heard a a sound in the night, I mean, every one of us who lived through that, if you heard a sound, you were more likely to get out of bed and look around. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's scary. I mean, it's he was a terrorist. He terrorized the city. He certainly did. And uh, uh, an interesting thing, I I don't know what the timeline was here, but... uh, Korea was the one that finally was able to connect these as part of a serial event, right? But that didn't happen until like halfway through the 13 or 15 people had died. Am I right with that, Paul? And also no one believed him at first. Yeah, yeah. And he couldn't convince even other professionals that this was the case. Yeah. they. Uh, it took a while to see the connection, and that was the importance of the, uh, of the shoes. Mm-hmm. The same shoe prints are at every place. And they're very distinctive pair of shoes. I mean, the piece of detective work on getting to the manufacturer and finding out how many pairs of those shoes were shipped to Southern California for sale, one pair. One pair, which was unbelievable. Black ones. He had the only black pair. Yeah. Yeah. But there was no way to trace where they went. It was what what a great clue. So tell us some of the other feedback that you've received. Are there online communities discussing the documentary and maybe even remembering things that may have happened in their neighborhood or to their parents? Or what kind of feedback have you been receiving? Well, you, Paul, you've received some, haven't you? Uh, I've received a little bit. It was really surprising to me. So much of what we did in commercial TV 
was based upon demographics. When you hear about ratings, there are demographic categories. Um, and I was really unfamiliar with streaming. And the first thing that happened was uh, my daughter texted me a picture of myself on TV <laughs> that a friend of hers had sent to her. <laughs> and the friend had said, is this your dad? <laughs> Most of the reaction was from people far younger than I am. Exactly. Yeah. <laughs> There's a whole true crime universe that uh, they've all found each other online and they're obsessed. Go ahead, so Paul. I'm just as shocked when you said that because the same thing happened to me. Okay. Yeah. How, I mean, do, they, how do they choose them... you two guys? I mean, Tony Valdez, the great longtime Fox reporter, was interviewed. But how were you guys the two pivotal media representatives in that documentary? Well, as I say, we covered it a lot, mm -hmm. except for the final day when Patrick Healy was working. Uh, we covered it a lot and we had we had uh, clues that the investigators remembered. We also had a personal relationship that we, you know, as personal as you can get um, with the detectives. Uh, I, don't, I don't know. I mean, I think Gil and Frank like working with us and, and that's we're the two that they remembered. Every station was covering it. They didn't do much with the print media on there. It's, I'm kind of surprised they didn't come up with a reporter from the L.A. Times. or Because they're the best, Fritz. They were the best ones. Oh, well, we don't oh, have right, to go we that know far, they were, but I, no. do think, I do think that Paul and I had a relationship with Gil and Frank, and it is a story of these two guys. And so we kind of were the, the media. Uh, you know, we were the journalists that they, maybe they remember the most. Mm -hmm. I don't know. And we did come up with, you know, we did come up with some serious serious clues, um, mm -hmm. evidence. And and one of the things that I think it's important to talk about it in a situation like this, and I know Fritz knows this was the, was the case, it's not just a reporter or a producer who, who do the whole case. We, we did become the point counterpoint to Gil and Frank. I mean, it was a story to be told and we're characters in it. But when an investigation journalistically is going down, it's not just Paul and me. It's Pete Noyes working his sources. It's the people on the desk. It's a courier who says, I heard something. Mm -hmm. You know, it's it's a, another reporter who's covered some story and comes back with a piece of the of the puzzle. It goes on and on and on. And, and at the final day, when Richard Ramirez was captured, it wasn't just Dino Castro getting that shot. There was Scott DeRemer listening to the radios and putting it together. Mm -hmm. It's and, and you know this, Fritz, so I, I'm just stating the obvious, but it's a massive effort by an entire newsroom. It's not just one person. Uh, yeah, it's Fritz yelling, bring an umbrella. No, that's, that's true, but I will say... Um, Nobody was faster with marine layer information than I was. I will say that. <laughs> uh, but, but, but I, I will say this. I, I, I know you're going to be. I know you're going to be humble about this. But I, I think you are two of the best. Uh, not only in our market, but other markets, in the in the dissemination and gathering of local news. I, I mean, you guys were the best. I look back fondly on that period. And we might be in a, in a period now where it wouldn't be as easy for Pete Noyes to come running out and say, get on a plane and go to San Francisco. I don't think they do things like that anymore. They're budgetary issues and 
And as Paul said, demographic issues, it's just not, it, it's not these days like it used to be, I must say. Pete Noyes would probably not be in the newsroom. <laughs> no, no. He'd be in HR school. prison. Yeah, yeah. No, he was amazing. So, uh, Fritz, you might remember this, but at KNBC, there had been a big shakeup in leadership just before these events happened. Um, Who was the news director the new, at that time? We got a new news director. Tom Capper. Tom, Tom oh, right. Capper. Okay. And the the people in the newspaper, the print guys and women who wrote about TV news were on to all the tricks of the industry. What relationship the set has, how many promos you're running. Mm -hmm. And they kept asking Tom about that in interviews. Well, are you going to change the set? How about the anchors? You going to change their hairstyles? <laughs> and, uh -huh. and Tom kept saying the same thing. You win by covering the news better than anybody else. Yeah. Own the big story of the day. That's exactly right. It was a golden time for KNBC. Oh, man. Uh, uh, was it Was it at all chilling to realize that Richard Ramirez was probably watching you guys to learn how much detectives knew about him? No, what a good question. Now you well, freaked him out. We a see. lot of speculation in that question. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know. But he was watching the media, right? And the and the detectives were aware of that because something would happen and then he would... Uh, that's what they were worried about, the shoe print and everything. Yeah, there was a, a, a big event where the detectives figured out that he was paying attention to his clippings, as the phrase goes. <laughs> and one day, one Sunday... In the Los Angeles Times, there's a huge front page profile of Frank Salerno, Sergeant Frank Salerno, the legendary hillside strangler detective with a lot of personal detail. In yeah, that was creepy. Oh. And that profile pretty much had been planted to draw the killer out. Wow. They knew the killer was watching. Yeah, now, I, Laurel, same thing probably went through her head. I looked at the paper that day and went, why didn't they come to us? I think that the LA Times, uh, the print probably in those days had more durability. Mm -hmm. We're going to get better mileage. You could see it if you miss the newscast. Mm -hmm. And I think that's why they went that way. So when but you asked if Richard Ramirez was watching uh, television. I think he was more old school than we may know. Oh, uh, that might that might be. be you know, uh, uh, I'll say it again because I, I want to suggest that people give this a chance before they are intimidated by the content to watch this because of two reasons. One is it shows this healthy uh, competitive relationship, but also uh, co-supportive relationship between the police and the media, which is a big thing these days. Also, it it, uh, it, it was a great look. At, you know, we're in a period of time now where, where law enforcement is vilified. And so it really shows you the emotional wear and tear that a case of this magnitude can have on the police officers and their families, which I thought was fascinating. But I tell you guys, the most interesting psychological piece of this whole thing is the fans. 
and, and you close out the documentary with women that proposed to Ramirez, that sent him lewd pictures, that showed up in the courtroom every day to support him. I just found that insanely fascinating. It was, a- it was pretty outrageous sitting there watching it happen. Yes. I can imagine. I can imagine. There's just a lot of really disturbed people in the world. And and you, you said, Laurel, you love figuring out what makes people tick and the psychology behind our behavior. I mean, there's a reason for everything, right? Even if it doesn't seem abundantly apparent. Well, sitting there in court, it was it was it was two different worlds. You know, in front, there's the jury and there's Ramirez with his pentagram on his hand and playing to the cameras. And, and and then in the back, there are these women dressed up in curious costumes. And, <laughs> yeah. and, and, a kind of, and there would be kind of communication between them. It, and then you had the, 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 the victims testifying. Um, oh, man. It, wow. it was a real juxtaposition. The women who came in, I really didn't think a great deal about them at that point. I mean, they, to, to me, my first reaction was they were as damaged oh, as yeah. children as he was as a child. Absolutely. That's the only thing that made Probably sense to so. me. Uh, well, before we close out, I, I just want to thank you guys uh, so much. for uh, It was fun to rekindle our friendships. And also, I, I think in this documentary, I've known this all along, but in this documentary, you prove that you were two of the best at this game of anyone that's ever done it. You did a really wonderful job, and it's a, it's a fascinating four-part streaming documentary on Netflix called The Night Stalker. Thank you so much for being here, guys. Well, we Weezy, really appreciate your being with us today. We would love for you to join us online on Instagram and on Twitter, where we are at MediapathPod, and on Facebook, where we are Media Path Podcast. You can find full episodes with all kinds of bonus visual content on our YouTube channel, Media Path Podcast. We would love to know what media you've been enjoying, so you can contact us at our social media, or you can email us at mediapathpodcast at gmail.com. I want to thank our guests, Laurel Erickson and Paul Skolnick. Our team includes Dina Friedman, Francesca Demanda, John Maddox, Sharon Bellio, Bill Filippiak, Thomas Hubble, and you. I am Louise Palanker here with Fritz Coleman, and we will see you along the media path.